If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about textual criticism. This is the field of study through which we can know the original text of the New Testament. We are continuing from the previous episode today. And a serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Now, it's interesting to note here Satan's line of attack. Here in verse 4, he contradicts the word of God. Okay? She knows God said, if you eat it, you will die. And the serpent flat out contradicts that. You shall not surely die. Well, we see that kind of attack all the time. The Bible says things, the world laughs at us and says it's not true. Okay? You can't believe the Bible. But you'll notice in this case how Satan began his attack. Asking if God really said it. Exactly. Has God indeed said it wasn't even attacking the truth of what God said. It was to try to cast doubt in the mind of Eve as to whether God had actually said that or not. You can't be sure of what God said. Well, in this case, Eve showed that she did know what God said. And so he moved on to denying it outright. But here we have to understand why this approach is so significant. We've talked about the, the Enlightenment era when we talked about creation and evolution, beginning in the 17th century and then fully realized by the 18th century, it was a move among the intellectuals, the professors, the intelligentsia, to get rid of God, to make man the measure of all things, to elevate human reason and rationality as the ultimate means to attain the truth, the ultimate standard of truth. And that required a full-blown assault on God and his revelation. And we looked at how that was done. Darwinism was one way. Historical criticism to try to deny the reliability of the gospel books, for example. And uh, we don't know who really wrote them. They were written long after the fact. They were, uh, they were not written by eyewitnesses and so on. And really the goal here was to get rid of God. Professor Edward J. Lars, who we mentioned this, of the University of Georgia at the time, in his lecture series, The Theory of Evolution, A History of Controversy, said this. During the Enlightenment, during, say, the 1700s, notions of evolution began creeping back in. That is creation by natural law. If a people are intent in pushing out God or rejecting divine causation, really the only alternative. So spe species, well, they could be eternal, as Aristotle said, or they had to come from other species, where else could they come from? There's an admission there from, from Larson that evolution was about pushing out God. And we've looked at the fact that the forces arrayed against God, these intellectuals, atheists, and so on, were pushing God out, trying to push God out. And to do that, they had to discredit the Bible. And they did it in three areas, three areas of attack, three main areas. There's the evolutionary theory, historical criticism, and textual criticism. And we have 
apologists who are well aware of these attacks on historical criticism and try to respond. Unfortunately, in many cases, they buy into a lot of the liberal uh, presuppositions, but they, they, they're aware of it and they try to, they try to respond. Same thing with evolutionary theory. There are some, some good ministries trying to respond to that, though too many trying to go along with it. But textual criticism, which may be the most dangerous, just goes in under the radar. The Christians know that just do not understand the problem with it. And here's the problem. Remember, Scripture, the medium is the words, the message is the content, the text, and then the author is God. With historical criticism, the message and the author are being attacked. The Bible says, here's John testifies to you of these things which we saw Jesus rose from them. They say, nope, not true. Same thing, evolutionary theory. The attack is on the message and the author. The Bible says God created the world in six 24-hour days. And they say, no, it's not true. And you have the option as a Christian. You can say, well, the Bible says this. The historical critic says that. I'll go with what the Bible says. The, The evolutionist says this. The Bible says that. I'll go with what the Bible says. But textual criticism doesn't attack just the message and the author. It attacks the medium as well. Has God really said? So with textual criticism, it's not attacking simply the content that's being said. And you can either choose to accept what the critics say or reject it. They attack the very words itself. So the error is no longer supposedly because what the Bible says disagrees with what external sources say, the error is supposed to be in the text itself. As we saw, for example, in Mark 1-2. We, we can't say, well, okay, Isaiah didn't say that because we're told that it's in the text. The error is in the text itself. It's not simply claims made by external sources. It is within the text itself. And if you believe that, then you're going to have a lot of trouble holding on to the idea of inerrancy. And once you've let go of inerrancy, you have also lost biblical authority. Don't you think so? Yeah, well, I do know from previous sessions with you, Christian apologists will try to explain away the errors, but really an error is an error. It doesn't matter if other people in those days made that error too. Yes, and the reality is they will do it on one or two of these, like Mark 1, 2, but they think there are too many of them. Eventually they give up. They don't even try anymore. And inerrancy is pretty much a dead thing among evangelical scholars. There, There are very few of them who actually hold to it. There are a number who will say they believe in inerrancy, but they redefine inerrancy so that doesn't mean no errors. It's, it's, a, it's a dead thing. And partly that was because of the influence of Darwinism, partly because of historical criticism. But the one you can't get around is textual criticism. If you believe that this is the original text in the New Testament, the one with these errors in it, then you can no longer believe in inerrancy. And once you don't believe in that, your view of biblical authority is going to be affected whether you realize that or not. So why is this minority reading that introduces an error into the Bible put into every major modern translation except the NKJV? Because putting errors into the biblical text is exactly what textual criticism was developed to do. Now, 
most or probably all textual critics today don't know that. They haven't studied the history of it or really thought about the history of how it came about. But that is what it was designed to do. It was part of the, that Enlightenment attack on the reliability of the Bible. If we remember historical criticism, the groundwork was laid by German rationalist scholars and it's the same thing with text critical theory. The foundations of it were laid by German rationalist scholars, and they went through a number of steps designed to discredit the Bible. And the first step really was to separate the extant manuscripts into what they called text types or families. So, our scholars may boast of our so-called embarrassment of riches, that we have 5,800 manuscripts of the Bible. But really, that's not the way it's seen. Because they will take these 5,800 manuscripts and they divide them into families with the idea that each family descended from one original archetype. So... If you've divided it into three families, as they do, the Byzantine, the Alexandrian, and the Western, there used to be one called the Caesarean, but I think the majority of scholars don't hold to that one anymore. So if you have these three families, then really you don't have 5,800 manuscripts. You actually have only the three archetypes from which each family came from. Is there any actual evidence for these three archetypes? Actual evidence, no. They will look at constellations of variants and say, well, if, if this manuscript has these variants in it, then it belongs to this family. If it has that constellation of variants, it belongs to that family. And then they will try to track down where they originally came from. The so-called Alexandrian family traces back to Alexandria and Egypt. Whereas the Byzantine, they would just basically say it goes back to the Byzantine Empire. But the Byzantine Empire was huge. It, it covered much of what used to be the Roman Empire for some time. And even centuries later, it was still a huge territory. So when you say Byzantine, you're covering an awful lot of territory there. So, so how can it be proper to make that one family? The Byzantine. Well, uh, here's the thing. The Byzantine, supposed Byzantine family, includes the vast majority of these 5,800 manuscripts because they actually have very little variation in their text. They, they don't have these errors in them. Now, there are variants, of course, but if you look at the Byzantine manuscripts as a whole and compare and contrast them, you don't get these errors that liberal scholars want to have. Mostly they will date from the 6th century and later. There are some that are earlier. But most of them get lumped into that family, the Byzantine. The Alexandrian consists of a very small number of manuscripts. There are very few of them from Alexandria and Egypt. They include our oldest manuscripts. But they don't have the sort of consistency you see in the Byzantines. Not only do they differ from the Byzantines in a number of important variants... But they differ from each other. Well, if they differ from each other, I don't understand how they can be classified as one family. Well, that's actually an open question because there's no hard and fast definition for what would constitute a family or a text type. Some of 
scholars would say, well, if there's a 70% agreement on these variants, then you belong in the same family. And others have pointed out that by these various definitions, the Alexandrian manuscripts don't even belong in the same family with each other. Nevertheless, that's, that's how they've done. The Western, in fact, is based on one Greek manuscript, and only one. And they say that the, the old Latin has derived from this, but those are translations. They're not Greek manuscripts. So you've got these three families, the Byzantine, the Alexandrian, and the Western. The Byzantine, as I say, comprised probably 90, 95% of the manuscripts or more. The Alexandrian is a small number, a handful of manuscripts that tend to contradict each other. The Western is based on one. Now, this idea of separating them into these text types or families or, or recensions, a recension means it's edited from an original archetype, was done by a German rationalist scholar named Johann Salomo Semmler, who lived from 1725 to 1791. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.